A nurse came in with a bit of paper and on it was a whole heap of scribbles. She took out six files and she started taking blood out of my right arm. He walked in about five minutes later and gave me another piece of paper and said, Rob, I need you to come back tomorrow and get some scans because the radiographer is too busy today to see you. So on the Saturday morning, I went and got the scans and on Monday, I got a text and the text said, please call the doctor to get your results. So I rang the doctor and he said, Rob, I need to see you. I'd like you to go home, grab your wife, pack a bag. We're off to the Royal North Shore Hospital. Before we continue with the story, I just want to quickly mention what the Global Stories That Stir movement is all about. Our mission is to facilitate a revolution of human connection through storytelling. And you're helping us with that right now by listening to this podcast. If you love this podcast as much as I love you, then I'd really appreciate it if you'd jump onto your favourite podcast app and give us a rating and review. And by the way, five stars are much appreciated. Thanks so much. And now to stir things up. Rob Manning is our next storyteller. So Rob has been passionately advocating for changes to Australian's organ and tissue donation system. His focus has been the critical role that unsuspecting families play in saving strangers' lives when they themselves have lost a loved one. Please welcome Rob to the chapter. Wow. Um, I feel like a bit of an imposter because... Whilst I'm 56, my journey for organ and tissue donation only started two and a bit years ago. For 54 years, I'd led the most cherished life. I was a senior executive at the age of 25 for a multinational company. I'd run businesses for Telstra and a whole heap of other big corporations. And life was just a wonderful thing. I'd travelled the world, I'd seen everything I wanted to see. I'd had a beautiful son, I met a beautiful lady and we got married. We had the baby after we got married. When my son was about to turn 21, my wife said to me, Rob, you don't have any excuses. There's a new medical centre that's opened up around the corner. You really should go and see a doctor. You haven't seen one since Oliver was born. And so 20 odd years after my son was born, I walked into the GP hoping that I could say to the receptionist, I'd like to make an appointment to see the doctor. And she would say, come back in two weeks because that's what I was told happened in the medical system. But instead she said, no, Mr Manning, take a seat. There'll be a doctor with you shortly. So as I sat in the Crow's Nest Medical Centre, waiting for the doctor to come, I saw a door open and a short Egyptian man at about five foot two walked out. He got from about here to there away and he said, Mr Manning, you're a very sick man. What are you here for? I said, nice to meet you too, doc. A nurse came in with a bit of paper and on it was a whole heap of scribbles. She took out six files and she started taking blood out of my right arm. He walked in about five minutes later and gave me another piece of paper and said, Rob, I need you to come back tomorrow and get some scans because the radiographer is too busy today to see you. So on the Saturday morning, I went and got the scans and on Monday, I got a text and the text said, please call the doctor to get your results. So I rang the doctor and he said, Rob, I need to see you. I said, good, I'm in Melbourne tomorrow and Wednesday for business. I can see you on Thursday. He said, Rob, I need to see you. I'd like you to go home, grab your wife, pack a bag. We're off to the Royal North Shore Hospital. So Monday afternoon, the 29th of March, I was triaged into Royal North Shore Hospital. And at about one o'clock on the Tuesday morning, one of the doctors said to me, Rob, 
if you'd come in tomorrow, you wouldn't be going home. Your toxicity levels are so high, you're suffering from liver failure. And I said, but I don't feel sick. So for two weeks I stayed in there. I had to get a day pass for two reasons. One, on Sunday the 4th of April, it was my son's birthday. And on Wednesday the 7th of April, I was opening the Crow's Nest Comedy Club where I go on to meet Monica. <laughs> so I did both of those. I got a four-hour pass for the Sunday to have lunch with my son for his 21st birthday. And I got a two-hour pass to open the Crow's Nest Comedy Club. I went back into hospital for another week, got out, went through a series of tests. We now get to July. I go to a meeting with one of the doctors and they said, Rob, you have end-stage liver disease. We don't know what's causing it, but you've got less than 12 months to live. And at that point, you suddenly realise you're mortal. And she went on to say, unless we can get you a liver transplant in the next 12 months, there's a very high likelihood you'll be dead. So you suddenly think, we need to get our life sorted out. So my wife and I bought a beautiful property up in the Central Coast, which is where we live tonight. And we now fast forward to November. I went in for what I thought was a regular checkup, get some ascites tapped, get the fluid that was in my liver taken out. And they say, we've got to do some heart surgery because the veins around your heart are also failing. So we're now in a situation where it's potentially liver transplant, some heart surgery, and even maybe kidneys. And so when my wife and I were talking to the anaesthetist, they said, well, perhaps we need to give him enough anaesthetic to do these operations all at once, but it might be too much and he might not wake up. I got let out of hospital on the 6th, 17th of December, went home to the Central Coast. I cried as we walked in or drove down to the street to the new house. And on the Sunday morning, I woke up and I said to my wife, I feel strange. I had sore back. I'd never had back problems in my life. And she said, have you taken your medication? I said, no. She said, have you had any breakfast? I said, no, and I'm not going to. She said, have you been drinking water? I said, no. It was about 38 degrees and I was becoming quite difficult to, to live with or to deal with. And she said, I'm going to the petrol station. I'm going to put some petrol in the car. We're going back to Sydney tonight. And I said, no, there's no way I'm leaving. I'm staying here. She left. And when she got back, I was standing in the front door and she said, Robbie, you're all right. I said, no, I can't get my shoe on. And she said, but Rob, you're naked. And at that point, I realised I was probably in a bad way. She bundled me into the car, and there's a lot more to that story, but I'll fast forward now because we're about to run out of time. I got to the, uh, to the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital at about four or five in the afternoon, and by six o'clock, after my wife had gone home and I'd been admitted to the ward, I was then put into a coma, and I spent two weeks in a coma. I missed Christmas, I missed New Year. I woke up on the 2nd of January, and I looked down and I had about 45 staples from here to here. And I had a video camera that they gave to me because I wanted to speak to my wife. And I told her that I said, I think I've had a heart, lung and liver transplant. Thankfully, it was only the liver transplant. Two weeks later, I was out of hospital. But while I was in the coma, it didn't feel any different to like me talking to you now. And my wife would come and visit me and I'd talk to the doctors and I'd tell them, my name's Rob Manning and I was born on the 6th of January and everything I needed to know to get my medication. And my dad came. My dad said to me, he said, Rob, you're not six foot tall and bulletproof like you think you are. If you'd seen your GP a lot sooner, you wouldn't be in this situation now. When you get out of this, and you will, you've got a job to do. Tell everyone you've ever played footy with, you've ever gone to school with, you've ever worked with, tell them to see their GP because if you'd done that, you wouldn't be here. And you also have to go and speak to the politicians. 
and tell them to change the laws in relation to organ and tissue donation. They have to change the legislation, the education and the communication. Three things, that's all they have to do. So, on the 14th of January when I got out of hospital, just two weeks after New Year's Eve surgery, there's a whole long story about that, I started working with politicians, not only here in New South Wales, but in Victoria and South Australia and Western Australia and Canberra and Tasmania, the Northern Territory and Queensland, in fact, across the entire country. In April this year, I went across to the World Transplant Games and rep represented Australia in three sports I'd never played at competitive level. Tennis, golf and 10-pin bowling. Didn't win any medals, but I met a lot of beautiful people. <laughs> but I also met a, an amazing politician who I spoke to about the environment because my life, when my life changed, I decided a few things. Business is important, and I think it was said earlier that we chase stuff and we get new stuff and that gets old and then we get new stuff. Now I care about the environment, but what I really care about and what I'm really passionate about and what's changed my life is the fact that in Australia we have an amazing health system that saved a bloke like me and gave me a second chance so that I can go around and talk to politicians and get them to change things. But what I want to do tonight is say to everyone, pass these back and if you don't want it, just keep passing them until everyone gets a hat, as many as I've got. If you've ever thought about organ donation and you're a bit scared of it, I can understand why. I can only make you three promises. None of us are getting out of this alive. The other promise, or another promise, is that we'll all lose someone we love or be lost to someone we love before we want to be in that situation. And the last promise I can make is that organ donation is 100% painless for the organ donor. The pain is for the family that has lost someone. To be an organ donor in Australia, you have to be one of the unluckiest people on the planet. 2% of Australians die in the right way to become organ donors. And of those 2%, you have to be on life support in a hospital. And at that moment, when you're on life support in a hospital, your family get told you're never coming home. But, and this is where everything after that word but becomes blah, blah, blah. What the hospital is trying to say to you is but, out of your tragedy, something good can come. Your loved one is a potential donor and their organs could save the lives of other people. And that's a really hard thing to come to grips with. It's harder, actually, believe it or not, to accept the fact that I'm walking with my donor hero every day. So I'm extremely grateful for my second chance and I'll use my second chance so that the people who tomorrow, the next day or the day after will become unsuspecting donor families. Because in Australia, our donors are everyone from little kids to adults in their 60s, 70s and 80s. But for me, it's the parents of the little kids who their kids go to school and never come home, but they still have the compassion and the love to say yes when asked to give consent when they know their loved one's never coming home. And it's because of that compassion that I got a second chance to do what I do. So thank you.